Welcome to the Science of Sports Recovery podcast. I'm your host, Jace Kraft, and today I'm chatting with the author of Roar, Women Are Not Small Men. She is the leading global expert on female physiology and endurance training. So if you are a woman, if you coach women, if you have a wife that's training, if you're interested in wooing an endurance woman, you have to go check out her Instagram at Dr. Stacy Sims and go learn some stuff. We talk about the differences between men and women. We talk about the how your menstrual cycle can be an ergogenic aid and what actually that means. We study the iron levels in women as well as low energy availability and the differences between coaching men and coaching women. It's going to be a good one. Let's dive in. You're listening to the Science of Sports Recovery Podcast. Each week, we explore how to recover more efficiently from training so you can work out harder and realize your full potential. This is the Science of Sports Recovery Podcast. Hey, Stacy, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be chatting. It's great. Yeah, awesome. Well, I, I want to start with um, what sport means to you, because obviously every researcher, every athlete has kind of a unique story of how they got started in sport and, and why. Oh, um, so mine is just your traditional younger sister trying to get away from older sister. And I wrote, <laughs> <laughs> I would ride my bike and she wouldn't. And I cycling and stuff became freedom to me it's mm -hmm. like you get on your bike and go places and it's just free and the yeah. way you feel when you're moving and so that was kind of the first inkling into sport that how, um how old were you got, at that point seven i think okay you know? yeah yeah she's three years older i guess so. then yep yeah awesome awesome so then did the cycling did that turn into like an organized sport or was that just a hobby and then when you get into you know uh, junior high, high school, you started yeah. doing something else. Um, so I was a ballerina growing okay. up for the most part. And then when I got to be about 13, my instructor was like, you need to choose between running and ballet. And I recommend running. So okay. <laughs> I got into organized cross country and um, then got into rowing when I was at university and then okay. found cycling. And cycling's always been in the background. It's been a mode of transport of freedom but I didn't really start racing bikes until I was in my 30s oh really okay yeah, yeah. so what was uh how, how'd you get into rowing from being a cross-country athlete that seems like quite the transition <laughs> transition I know um so I was getting burnt out and when I started university and mm. and trying to find something to do and I was in the gym and I saw people rowing and then out and I started running with them like, Hey, you should try it for the crew team. And at the same time, I was being recruited to run for Purdue where I was. And I walked away from a potential scholarship running to pick up a club sport of rowing. And I loved it. It was yeah. awesome. Yeah. Cause it just so many different aspects because running is just running, but with rowing, you have total body movement introduction to real weight training and, mm -hmm. and, working as a team or not, if you're in sculling. So yeah, it was just a great environment okay. to actually be part of a team, but also an individual. Okay. Yeah. So, and then you did that all through university? 
Yeah. And um, had a, a single skull near my mom's house. So I'd um, row in the summers and stuff, but then got involved in ultra running, mm-hmm. went back to my running roots, got involved in ultra running and then short course triathlon, then Ironman. And then always still love my bike and switch from Ironman to bike racing. And yeah, now I just dabble in everything. Awesome. Well, you're quite the all around athlete. That's for sure. <laughs> oh, it has to be fun. <laughs> yeah. hundred percent. So, uh, obviously we, we want to talk about kind of the differences between men and women, and that's kind of the focus <laughs> of this conversation. Um, but when was it in your athletic career that you started to realize that, Hey, maybe the training isn't or, you know, the training or the materials or the recovery advice isn't meant for women and rather it's for men. So rowing actually on the group team, because we were rowing in a boat of eight women. And at the same time I was doing exos and metabolism as undergrad. Hmm. So we get thrown into these labs and my results would be different and they get thrown out and I start asking questions and wouldn't mm-hmm. get answers. And then I started seeing it in application as an athlete and still wondering things and going, well, why is it that we're training the same way, but yet we're not getting the same results. Mm-hmm. We're told to recover the same way and the guys seem to spring back, but the girls aren't. And why is it that sometimes we're all flat and other times we're not? And so I would bring these questions into the lab or into the classroom and they're like, yeah, we don't know. I was like, what do you mean you don't know? And they're like, oh, well, we don't really know that much about women because we just generalize for men. Or the other thing is, well, women might be grouped in, but often the results are an anomaly. Mm. That doesn't sound right. So that really was the impetus and drive mm. to figure it out from being an athlete and and an, in an academic aspect and not getting answers. So then I became the academic to get the answers sure. as well as being an athlete. Yeah. Do you think you would have became the academic that you are if there wasn't like that discrepancy between uh, men and women or or lack of knowledge of women? Is that really kind of what drives you now? Um, Gosh, it's a kind of a hard question because it's been going on for so long. Um, No, I think I still would have been academic because there's so many different things that are interesting and science is always evolving. For sure. Um, and I work closely with a good friend and colleague who's a sociologist. She's looking at the context of women in sport. And yeah. so that brings another whole layer into, into it because we are often pigeonholed into a box of how we grew up or the people around us. Mm-hmm. But that's not the same experience as someone who might live down the street. So understanding how all of those influence affect performance and how we feel when we move. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there's all sorts of cool layers that go into yeah. to research. Yeah, for sure. So when you were told that, you know, you know, we don't know that much about women, we don't, you know, we just kind of generalize for men, what like emotion, like, was it an emotional response right away that like was like, this isn't right? Or did it like sink in a little bit later? Did it take multiple times or was it right away when you're like, hey, my results don't matter. There's something wrong with this. Yeah. Um it sit, sat pretty hard, but despite how I am now, I was super quiet and shy, so I didn't really mm. counter it. Okay. Uh, yeah. And so as it sat and I kind of thought about it more and more, it started really frustrating me. And when I got to grad school and transferred out of one um, subsection into another and my new advising professor 
Stacy, you look like a Barbie doll. I just figured your intelligence matched. And then I was like, whoa, there's this whole other layer of things going on mm-hmm. where women are just so marginalized. And that was the point where I was like, like just F it, right? Because yeah. I there's so many things that go on about being a female athlete that need to be answered. Yeah. Um, so that was like through undergrad, really trying to get the questions answered mm-hmm. and wasn't, but too afraid to push back. But once I got to grad yeah. school at that point of a very misogynistic older person who's supposed to be my advisor pushes back because they just assumed I wasn't very intelligent, just mm-hmm. the way I looked. And I was like, Mm-mm, we got to answer these questions now. So, yeah. yeah. Wow. That that's quite the, um, the experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. So it, it comes, you know, this, this topic is so important because, yeah. uh, obviously you know you know more than 50 percent of the population is female uh, there's plenty of female athletes out there it's not like that you know it's dominant men by any means um, and most of the female coaches are still men right. so like there's a disconnect between like my experience I coach based on my experience because that's what I know you know so if I'm giving advice to a miler or you know a distance runner um I take in my experience I take in what I know from academic and then I you know send it to them Um, yeah so I have no idea about the you know female um I I shouldn't say I have no idea I married a woman but I still you know I never experienced it uh myself so I don't know like that part of it and I think it's you know, not talked about enough, especially as in men coaching women that, Hey, you need to understand the people that you're actually coaching. Uh, right. So like, where would, where would you start um, as a, a male coach coaching female athletes? Like what should we dive into first? Yeah. So this becomes a difficult conversation because it really revolves around a woman's menstrual cycle and are they naturally cycling? Are they on oral contraceptive pill? Are they on IUD? Are they perimenopause, postmenopause? And that becomes a very interesting conversation and still a little bit taboo for a male coach to rock up to a female athlete and be like, hey, you have a menstrual cycle? Are you regular? Like people are really, yeah, a little bit touchy about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so generally, I really try to get coaches to, um, you know, for new athletes, have an intake form and just have it as one of the basic questions. Are you naturally cycling or on oral contraceptive pill? Because that kind of broaches the comment. The other is if you have existing female athletes and you're like, yeah, well, I've been reading and listening to the research that's coming out, particularly in the past few years about the menstrual cycle and how it can really help us tailor in your training to improve your performance. Mm-hmm. So I'd kind of like to talk to you about that. So it's just a really kind of open conversation and most coaches and athletes have a good enough relationship that they can bridge that conversation. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about the menstrual cycle, we can put it more on the woman to track and then make notes to the coach and say, Hey, I know that I feel really great on this day. I don't feel so great on that day. And just more of that objective data about how she feels around her cycle. So that if you're marking things in like training peaks or some other platform, then you can see it. Mm -hmm. Or if you're just having that conversation and as a coach, you're like, 
what happened? You didn't hit these numbers today. Then then she could probably be like, oh, well, it's day 23 and I'm always a bit flat on day 23. So maybe we should look at doing a key session a few days before that where I can fantastic. Mm. Um, So it doesn't have to be, you know, in the weeds, understanding every nuance of the menstrual cycle or anything like that, but it's really getting that basic tracking. So both the coach and the female athlete can to see the patterning of where she feels great and can put mm. in the really hard training and where we might need to back it off so she can absorb that hard training. Mm. So that, that's a, a great, you summed that up really well. Um, and, and I'm wondering now from like the female perspective, if there's, I, I mean, I'm sure there's women that have never thought to try to you know track where they are in their cycle compared to how they feel on training um is it as simple as like just keeping a log or like what should they be looking out for and and what times of them yeah so uh it can be as simple as saying well day one is the first day of bleeding and i'm going to mark that on my calendar so i might have a little asterisk right or i put that in my training log and i put a little asterisk okay first day of bleeding and then you keep your training metrics like how did you feel what were the intensities could you nail the second half of the workout Um, how was sleep so you just all your basic recovery and training metrics then you can layer those over where you are in your cycle so we say day one is the first day of bleeding Ovulation is another phase. And so that's around day 12 to 13. And you have an estrogen surge. So a lot of women feel bulletproof. And then a lot of other women feel flat until a couple of days later when estrogen starts to come down. Then they feel bulletproof. Oh, so you can manipulate training around there. And then after ovulation, estrogen progesterone starts to come up. And this is where women really um, have fantastic results in more steady state and up tempo work because they okay. can't quite hit high intensities but their body's starting to shift to use a little bit more fatty acids. So they can really hone in on that top maximum aerobic capacity aspect. Yeah. And then in the about five days before the period starts, when estrogen progesterone have peaked. This is where women have more of that flat feeling. They can't access carbohydrates, can't hit high intensities. Their core temperature is up. Estrogen across the blood brain barriers. So there's more mm-hmm. nervous system fatigue. So you say this is the time to deload or just do more active recovery, work on running drills, work on mobility, flexibility. Um, and so you're absorbing the previous three to four weeks of that heavy training. That you've okay. And when you're marking that down on your calendar and you're starting to see the nuances of your menstrual cycle versus your training, this is where you can say, oh, yeah, I am one of those women that feels fantastic on day 12, but then I might feel flat on 14. Mm-hmm. Or you might go, oh, I feel really flat on day 12, but on day 14, I'm rocking it. So then you can switch the training a bit. The one thing that happens is the, as I was saying, the socio-cultural aspects come in where there's that, you should feel awful during your period. You should feel awful the few days before your period. And perception is really powerful because if Mm -hmm. we tell a woman she's going to feel like shit, then she'll go out and she'll report back, I feel like shit. But what I want women to understand is you can be empowered and you should be able to push through and feel fantastic, especially on your period, mm-hmm. because the hormones have dropped and your body is primed and ready to yeah. hit it hard. And so taking that nuance away of that whole myth that you have to be a delicate flower around this time period, just take it away and feel yeah. empowered that you have it. Awesome. Giving them permission right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> 
Um, so, so what's the difference then between like a natural cycle and, and, and cycle through a contraceptive uh, in, in all that? Yeah, so um, uh, when you're taking an oral contraception, the combined oral contraceptive pill, you usually have three, three weeks of an active pill and then a sugar pill week. And when you're taking exogenous hormones or this external hormones, it downregulates your natural cycle. So your own body is not responding. You don't have any of your natural hormones. And that sugar pill week when people have a quote period, it's not a true period. It's a withdrawal bleed. So it's not indication of what's going on in the body. Mm. With an oral contraceptive pill, you have three weeks of a pretty high hormone steady state. And we know that the first two to three days of that sugar pill week, you have the ability to recover really well as those hormones are starting to come up to, to more of a steady state. And then it gets a little bit harder to recover and harder to adapt to that high intensity the longer you are in that steady state hormone profile. And then the first two to three days of the sugar pill, when the hormones have completely dropped before your natural hormones come up again, you have another ability to hit it hard. So when you're on an oral contraceptive pill, you still want to track training versus your pill week um, for weeks. So you can see where you have the little bit more ability to put in harder training. Okay. Interesting. Um, is, do you get, like, I, I've heard you kind of refer to the menstrual cycle as an ergogenic aid. Uh, for yeah. women. Um, do you still get that when you're taking an oral contraceptive or is it kind of muted? Um, you don't. So when I say your period is an ergogenic aid, it's for women who are naturally cycling. Mm -hmm. If you get your period, then it means that you have maintained a, a health profile where you're getting enough calories in, you're absorbing the training, you're responding well. And it's that it's like the first uh, um, thing that starts to go awry if you are overtraining or you're in an overreach state that you can't, you're in a functional overreach state that you can't really pull back from. You start to get menstrual cycle irregularities or it might stop. When you're on an oral contraceptive pill, you don't have that because the pills are controlling are really the hormones. So you're hmm. from an external standpoint, providing your body with hormones um, and you can't really manipulate your training around the hormones because they're all the same for three weeks. Okay. Wow. But if I often tell a female athletes, it's like when you're looking and you're on a pill, if you don't need to be on it for health reasons, if you don't have endometriosis, PCOS, then have that conversation and say, well, why am I on it? Should I be switching? Because if you're mm -hmm. on an IUD, you can track your natural cycle and you can still um, like phase train based on your cycle, because you can track it with uh, basal body temperature and using an over counter ovulation predictor okay. kit, because you can still ovulate with an IUD or use a progestin only pill, because this doesn't downregulate your estrogen and your luteinizing hormone. It does modulate natural progesterone, but you still have the same responses until the last few days before your period starts. Okay. And then because you're on progestin only, it's not as impactful on recovery as a natural cycle. So there's different options to consider. Okay. So I know a lot of women are just on a pill just because that's what their GP said. They go and they're like, I want to be on, on a contraception and they write a combined oral contraceptive pill. Here you go. Awesome. 
Um, yeah, I wouldn't have known any of that. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, yeah. So back in episode 19, I talked to Ellen uh, and we talked about losing your, your period uh, yeah. altogether, which obviously is not a good thing. Um, can you, can you lose a period if you're on like a, a contraceptive like that? Yeah, but you won't know. This is the thing. Some other women will be put on an oral contraceptive pill because they are amenorrheic. They don't have their periods. Mm. And so a lot of times they're like, oh, we'll put you on a pill to give you a period. But again, it's not a true period. And it's not making your body healthy to produce its own mm. hormones. And a lot of times women develop that amenorrheic or their periods stop because they're not fueling well enough. They're training too hard and not bringing in enough fuel. So mm -hmm. if you're not eating enough and you don't have enough carbohydrate on board, then this little neuropeptide in the brain says, oh, we need to not tell the body to produce these hormones because we can't actually reproduce. So if your body doesn't have enough fuel coming in to maintain general health, then it's not going to allow you to have a menstrual cycle because the whole idea about a menstrual cycle is reproducing. So you don't have enough to fuel you, then you definitely won't have enough to yeah. You know, support a pregnancy so your body is intuitively saying eh, what's going on here let's dial everything down so it conserves resting metabolic rate goes down mm. you put on more body fat you become really tired incidental movement and activity slows down appetite goes up so there's all these things that happen when you lose your period wow uh, what about like an irregular period i know um there's women that kind of you know take a contraceptive because they have a irregular period it is the irregular period it, it, could that be something of like that training and you know nutrition is affecting or is it you know natural or how does that work yeah so um we talk about in ovulatory cycles and there are most women will have maybe two or three anovulatory cycles a year. So that's normal. And when you don't ovulate, then your period becomes shorter because it's a, um, the second half that, that really is affected if you don't have progesterone. <clears throat> and women's cycles will change depending on stress as well. So I'll look at um, like a platform of overlaying the menstrual cycle for a team sport athletes and we'll see when they were traveling and when they weren't. And I won't even know their schedule. I'll just look at their cycles and see how they've changed. So I can see the stress points. So when you're under a lot of stress, be it life stress or training stress, your yeah. period shortens for the most part, or you might skip one and it's really long. So then it's like two months before between mm -hmm. cycles, but you can be regularly irregular and still be healthy. If we okay. say, well, generally they say if you have eight to nine periods a year, then it's not a worry. But if you miss three in a row, then we know something's wrong. Okay, interesting. Um, so if if a woman um, is you know uh, tracking their periods and and all this as from a recovery standpoint. Um, what should they be looking at? And then what should like they potentially uh, change in whether either their diet or uh, exercise? I know we had talked just, you know, briefly towards the end of your period is when you, you know, might need to deload some of that. Um, 
and, and rest more, but is there anything else that we should be looking at as far as signals of maybe, hey, I need to focus on recovery a little bit more? Yeah, um, in that high hormone state, our heart rate variability changes as well. So in the low hormone, you have um, a really good uh, heart rate variability, uh, indicating that you can be really resilient to stress. And in the high hormone phase, your respiratory rate goes up, your resting heart rate goes up, okay. your heart rate variability goes down, and that's normal. But some women will be like, oh my gosh, I've trained too hard. But understanding sure. that it's polarized, the two phases polarized. Mm-hmm. And when you are in that high hormone phase, you need more protein and more carbohydrate to come on board and making sure that you're fueling really well before each and after each training session to recover because your body can stay in a greater breakdown state after exercise in a high hormone. Low hormone, you can kind of get away with a little bit more. I don't really want people to do it, but you can if you need to. Uh, But in the high hormone phase, and that's ovulation up to when your period starts again, you really have to dial in, making sure you get enough protein. And this is regular protein in around training, regular doses throughout the day, so that your Mm. body doesn't stay in that catabolic breakdown state. Otherwise, it's the same as not eating enough. Is all protein created equal in, in this point, or is there better sources? Better sources. So we try to say, um, you know, if you're looking at three to three and a half grams of leucine um, per protein hit, that's what you're looking for. So it can be plant-based, can be animal-based. Um, it's for the leucine, but not leucine by itself. You need whole proteins. You need all of the essential amino acids to actually make things work. Okay. Um, so what that, are some that examples could, of, yeah. of that? So that could be um, just one of the single servings of, of non-fat or low-fat Greek yogurt or Icelandic okay. yogurt, like Siggy's or Fage or whatever it is. Um, it can be uh, two to three hard-boiled eggs. Um, it can be a, a protein shake that you've made with some yogurt and oat milk and some chia seeds and nut butter. Um, you can default to protein powders as well. Um, okay. And then if you're looking for a meal, you're looking at palm size of, of lean protein because that gives you a good about 25 gram hit. Okay, cool. Uh, it's kind of funny. You were you know, rattling these things off and I was like, that's like my wife's diet. <laughs> <laughs> She's doing well. Yeah. She's doing well then. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Uh, so I know you've done some studies on iron levels in, in women. Uh, mm-hmm. What what were your findings there? Um, so, so many endurance athletes get low iron. So mm-hmm. they have like iron deficiency or full-blown anemia. And then they start trying to do iron... Um, supplementation and it doesn't work Mm. because we end up with a lot more systemic inflammation and that causes this little enzyme called hepcidin to come up and hepcidin won't allow your gut to absorb iron and we know that it works across the menstrual cycle like hepcidin will circulate up and down across the menstrual cycle as well as inflammation And the best way to mitigate it all is by using a vitamin D3 supplement. So you can use vitamin D3 after training to help modulate the effects of inflammation and hepcidin, regardless of where you are in your menstrual cycle, so that your gut can absorb the iron. And the older you get as a female athlete, the more important it is, because Mm. that hepcidin level can take up to 24 hours to return to baseline. 
after you hit 45, but in younger women, it's about three hours. Okay. But it does, like I said, it does modulate across the menstrual cycle because mm-hmm. your body's storing iron before it sheds the uterine lining. So mm-hmm. it's low and then it comes up again. Okay. So the bottom line is vitamin D3 is your friend. Okay. And so you're saying that just so I'm clear here, vitamin D3 actually indirectly um, boosts your iron levels because your body is more open to absorb it rather than taking an iron supplementation that causes this inflammation, this hep, uh, hep C or three? Yeah, so hepcidin is your liver hepcidin. enzyme that, that comes up with inflammation and vitamin D3 downregulates it, so it drops okay. it down. So then your body can work normally by absorbing iron. That's um, awesome. And if you are super, super low, you want to get an iron infusion. So it's not going through the gut to get the iron levels up and then start putting the vitamin D3 in. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. I know, I know many, um, endurance athletes and I, and I would imagine, uh, that would hold true for the male population then yep. too. Uh, yep. Yeah, because there there are so many. I, I come from the distance world or endurance world, and there are so many athletes that you know they get their blood work check and oh, low iron. Who would have thought? You low know? iron. <laughs> yep, yep. And it's yeah, it's so prevalent. And part of it is you know not eating enough, especially in the endurance world. So you're just always on the cusp of, mm-hmm. of not getting enough iron in anyway. And then the information that comes with the endurance training also you know, does the hepcidin upregulation, which yeah. inhibits iron. So, you know, yeah. watch that inflammation, get that vitamin D3 in and then you absorb the iron yeah. and away you go. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, uh, it's interesting that this came up because I, I did inside tracker blood work um, mm-hmm. a few weeks ago or about a month ago, probably now. And my blood work came back. I was low in vitamin D and low in iron. There you go. Um, so must have been correlation there. Uh, is yes. vitamin D3, is there any, uh, like, if I'm going to look at uh, taking a supplement for vitamin D, uh, which is the only supplement that I take personally, is there something like, can I get a vitamin D2 on accident or yeah. vitamin D5? You can. Yeah. If you stick around and listen to enough of our episodes here on the Science of Sports Recovery podcast, you'll notice a common theme of importance of mobility in recovery and injury prevention. That's why I recommend checking out the Ready States Virtual Mobility Coach to help you improve your mobility, recoverability, and injury prevention. The Ready State is a brainchild of coach and athlete, Dr. Kelly Starrett, who you can learn more about on episode 13. His Virtual Mobility Coach program helps athletes understand the importance of recovery, pain relief, and self-care. In other words, it helps fix the recovery side of training so you can keep seeing results from your workouts. His program will guide you through the same mobilizations used on athletes in the NFL, NHL, and MLB, provide custom tools for pain relief, give you customized pre and post exercise mobilizations based on your training and sports schedule, and deliver daily mobilizations to keep you on track to achieve your goals. You put your heart and soul into your workouts. Make sure you get the most of them by going to the readystate.com slash Jace. Again, that's the readystate.com slash J-A-S-E. The link will also be in the show notes. 
Now, back to the show. You can get a, a D2 or D3, but you want the D3 because that's more bioavailable okay. and does all the actions you want it to. So, um, usually we say no more than a thousand international units. Thousand. Okay. Yeah. Definitely going to write that down, make sure I got the right yeah. one. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Take it after your training sessions and see your iron just whoop, come yeah. up. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Uh, okay, so you also did a, a study on low energy availability uh, yep. or LEA. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I'm curious to know what your findings are there as well, because I, I know like the for both the male and the female population, but there, there comes a point in your training where you're like, I just, I usually want to get out the door and train, but now I don't. And yeah. then, you know, you go too far down that alley and then you lead to burnout. Uh, and then, you know, you end up hating the sport that you once love and then you take some time off and then, you know, you, you regret your decision. Uh, yeah. So like, first of all, what are some symptoms or, uh, signs of low energy availability and then what was kind of like your basis for study there okay so there's a sex difference in your signs and symptoms and that has to do with some signaling in the brain which i'll get to in a minute okay so for men um you can hold a little bit of low energy availability and perform well for about three or four months and then you hit the defect testosterone plummets you start to put on um, belly fat and grow man boobs and you're just completely fatigued and you're like, my legs are heavy. I have no motivation. I'm dreading everything. So it's a big psychological fatigue toll. And those are the primary markers for men. Now for women with low energy availability, we to, like I said, get your regular menstrual cycles. Um, We start having a really super low heart rate, lower than what normal is, but have a really difficult time bringing it up in training because we Mm. have lost part of that sympathetic activation. Um, But then the flip side of that, there's more anxiety because then you have neurotransmitters and things Mm. that are saying, I need food, I need food. Um, And then the same physiological aspects that you can note is you put on belly fat and no matter what you're doing from a hard training standpoint, that belly fat won't bulge. Or is it, won't, yeah, it won't budge, sorry. It is a bulge, it won't budge. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you have really poor sleep patterns. Hmm. Um, and then, you know, main answer for women there is they'll try to train harder in class. And hmm. it just gets this downward cycle. And then again, they plateau and, and hit yeah. the walls. It's interesting that you said you get a lower heart rate for women because that could be a sign of like, you know, better shape. Uh, yeah, I know. Yeah. I know. But it's, it's, it isn't. It's because everything is downregulating. Resting mm. metabolic rate is downregulating. Everything's so it sure. can happen in men, but it's not as a telling sign in men because we have this threshold difference for, for energy availability. Mm. Um, and that has to do with this neuropeptide in the brain, kispeptin. Mm-hmm. And there are two um, parts in the hypothalamus that are activated in women, but only one in men. So when you start to have too low calorie intake for women, then one, one gets disrupted before the other, which causes all this cascade at a different threshold than men. Oh, interesting. The biggest thing that people can do when they're worried about being in low energy is make sure you have breakfast 
and make sure that you fuel really well for mm-hmm. the activity that you are doing. Um, and when we start to lose our appetite after a hard training session, then we know we need to eat. Mm. It's hard, but we need to eat. And then the rest of the day, you can kind of play with things, but it's so critical to fuel in and around training session for both men and women. Because mm-hmm. often we book in the days with calories. Like you get up and you're like, okay, I'm going for a run, come home, have breakfast, and you get busy yeah. and you forget. And then you end up at the end of the day starving and putting more calories in at the end of the day. Yeah. But you have this big hole in the middle of the day where your body's trying to repair and there isn't anything there. So you're in a significant breakdown state. And that is another signal that you're in a low energy state because you didn't fuel and give your body food when it needed it. Mm. Yeah. And we went in depth in how to fuel properly in, in episode 21 with Jen Giles. So if you're like, uh, if you're, if you're listening to this and like, Oh, I might be there. Uh, check your, check your feeling, um, go back to episode 21. Uh, cause I, I tell the story of, of myself doing this, like, like you said, and we talked about how exercise is an appetite suppressant sometimes mm-hmm. a hard exercises. Mm-hmm. And that held true for me. I'd go out and do my long, you know, 17, 18 mile run, um, you know, closing hard. And then I just wouldn't be hungry all day because yeah. and then I'd be starving the next day you know and obviously that's not you know your body needs something before the next right. day uh, right you know so but it's it's interesting how that happens when you think logically like I should be starving right away but you're not um, yeah. even like we'd go to uh, buffets after like meats and stuff and be like yeah we're gonna load up and I get like half a plate of flu- food down and I'm like oh I'm so stuffed <laughs> yeah I know it's funny it's funny how temperature fluctuations affect the hypothalamus and that's part of it because then you mm. get um, you know your appetite hormones are a little bit perturbed after hard session because you've just completely depleted and your body's in a bit of a tizzy yeah. well how do I replate oh well what do I need to replete so the Body versus appetite signaling is a little bit in a misstep. So you just eat. Just, mm-hmm. That's the point in time where you're just like, okay, I know I'm not hungry, but I do need to get something in so I can start to reset and settle the body and put that appetite back. Yeah. Which is opposite of what it, like any nutrition advice outside of the athletic world would, would tell you. Like, right. Don't eat when you're not hungry, you know. <laughs> right. I know. I know. And then, you know, that's the misstep where people will take mm-hmm. stuff from the, the health world and put into the athletic world. Yeah, totally. Right? It's two different worlds. Okay. Two different worlds. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So if I am a coach for... Um, a 5k I'm, I have a, a team that they're all running a 5k you know half of them are men half of them are women um, if I'm putting a training plan together mm-hmm. like should they can they be the same or like how would you put together a, a training program for women that might reflect better um, of their physiology than men and then this is where your menstrual cycle phase training comes into play. So um, you're looking at the woman's menstrual cycle. And again, in the low hormone phase, mm-hmm. this is where you're doing your high intensity reps, your VO2 work, um, and you're doing lots of track sessions because this is where they can be pushed mm-hmm. hard. 
around ovulation, same thing. And then after ovulation, it's more the steady state work, the threshold work. Um, and again, that's going to depend on how long the cycle is. Right? Okay. It's the running drills and the running technique mobility in those few days before the period starts. So in an ideal world, every woman's period and um, cycle, you could be really specific. But if you have a, a team orientation, mm -hmm. you're like, everyone needs to show up for a track workout. And then half the women are low hormone and half the women are high hormone. It's like, yes, everyone shows up for the track workout. But if you know as a coach, which ones are in that, high hormone phase a few days before their period, mm -hmm. then maybe they're not doing as many 800s and they're focusing more on running form in the 800 instead of the top end speed. Mm -hmm. So it's just small little modifications within the yeah. team environment to benefit yeah. the athlete. You're not singling them out in any way, shape mm -hmm. or form. They're still part of that inclusiveness of the team, yeah. but you're just modifying a little bit, just the same as someone was injured or coming mm -hmm. back from injury, how you modify a little bit. Uh, yeah. I guess that's kind of a bad analogy because I don't want people to think that there's a negative point in sure. the menstrual cycle, but it's yeah. just like coaches can adapt and work with their athletes in that team environment. Yeah. And that's just part of it. I think that just the, the little modifications is a good point. Cause I don't want to get to the end of this conversation and have somebody think, man, I have to write a whole new training plan for, you know, exactly. each, every, you know, uh, female athlete, yeah. um, because, you know, there's, you know, this, I don't know, different, you know, person. It's more about, like you said, the, the little adjustments throughout the, the training cycle, whereas, yeah. and, and especially like with men, it, it seems like you can do, you know, your, your VO2 and then threshold and then long run every week and just do it week after week after week. Uh, yep. whereas women, you, you know, you might have a couple different versions of the workout and based on yeah. where they're at. Yep. And I, I'm sure Helene told you about the coaching platform with wild. Mm -hmm. Maybe not. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, I mean, that makes it that. easier. Yeah. It makes it easier to be able to see who's doing what and how you can, can change things and, and not necessarily be on the fly on the day, but have a little bit more foresight into what kind of environment you're coming into on that day session. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Well, we're getting close to the end of our, our time here. So if there's um, any, like, if you could leave the conversation with one um, idea or, or statement um, to a coach and then to a female athlete training um, endurance or, you know, non-endurance, mm -hmm. uh, what, what do you want to leave them with? Um, so there's been a lot of conversation in like popular media about the menstrual cycle and training. And the one critical thing I need people to understand is that there's one point in time on the day of performance that is not necessarily affected by menstrual cycle hormones because the psychological aspect of wanting to perform well on the day and being in a race environment is completely different from the training metrics. You can phase-based train and you can use your cycle to benefit your training when you go hard, when your body can go hard and recover and then deload when your body's mm. a little bit more tired. But that is different from performance and racing. So I don't want anyone to be afraid to go out and say, oh, well, I'm a few days before my period starts. I'm not going to have a good race because mm. that's not true. Yeah. Perception and how you feel goes so much further on the day. So performance is one angle. Mm -hmm. Training is the other. 
And that awesome. goes for coaches and athletes. Yeah, that, that's such a good point. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that too. Um, I obviously am not a female, but I do have days where going into the competition, I feel like crap, you know, and like, this is not yeah. going to go well. Uh, and then I end up like PRing or, you know, winning or, or what have you. And like, where did that come from? You know, um, right. then I start to learn like, I, I don't need this negative self-talk before I even get there, you know, get to the line. No. Healthy is a big enough accomplishment. That I don't want to waste my opportunity there. Right. And that's the other thing about phase-based training is that it reduces injury risk and allows for better quality training, which every athlete wants mm-hmm. better quality training, less injury means that you just keep stepwise improvement. Yeah. And so performance on the day, there you go. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for uh, being with us here today, Stacy. If somebody wants to uh, learn more about Stacy and what she's up to, you can follow her on Instagram or Facebook um, at Dr. Stacy Sims and at her website, drstacysims.com, as well. Is there any place mm-hmm. else or any exciting things that you got going on right now that people should be aware of? Um, this will be released in late April. Um, so we have a follow-up to Roar that's coming out in July, but it's more for the perimenopause, menopause set. So, you know, further down the line and up to that point, um, we're doing a lot of women empowerment conversations through different seminars and, um, webinars and things, but all that will be posted through the Dr. Stacey Sims channel. So, yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, go check her out and uh, let her know that you heard her on the Sciences Force Recovery uh, podcast. Thanks so much, Stacey. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. All right. Episode's over. If you found value in this episode, please consider giving us a review on iTunes. And if you haven't already yet subscribed, do so now so you don't miss any important topics in the coming week. And if you have any questions or suggestions for the show, please send them my way. I am most responsive on Instagram. That's at jcheese, J-A-E, cheese, like the food, or email me directly at jace, J-A-S-E, at science of sportsrecovery.com. Talk soon.